started. Uh, last week, you may remember uh, Joel. Joel preached a sermon on the on the passages leading up to the passages that I'm covering today. And uh, if you did not get a chance to check out this sermon, I would really encourage you to uh, take a look at it. Uh, there was some uh, some some powerful information in uh, inside that sermon. And I'm going to try to give you just the nugget that I got out of it. And he kind of got here towards the end. But he basically was saying that this life is a painful contradiction uh, and was just acknowledging that, that, you know, we live in this life where death and life are reconciled in the same body, right? We, we constantly are faced with beautiful things that can take your breath away and then tragedies that can take your breath away in the other way, in the other sense of the word. So, uh, so he said, uh, the only answer to all that Right, the only one that reconciles these things that we can't mentally reconcile is Jesus, and He did that through His death on the cross. Right, so so that's kind of where He left us, and and it's interesting, you know, we go through these passages, and y- y- you're, there's going to be a lot of overlap for me today uh, with what with what Joel said, and I I don't really have a problem with that because at the end of the day, what we've got to give. The, the, the reason I stand on this pulpit is to minister the gospel. Uh, and the gospel is simple, and yet you could spend your whole life trying to understand it. Amen? Amen. And so if, 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 someone, if I'm charged with preaching the gospel too much, <laughs> I would consider that you know, a compliment, right? Because it's like this multifaceted diamond that you can turn all different kinds of ways and see something new every, every way you turn it. Uh, and so I hope, I hope what I can bring you today by the power of the Spirit is, uh, is beneficial to you. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Genesis 8, 20 through 21 as kind of a bedrock uh, for where we're heading in the rest of the passage. So, because uh, I'm going to be in 9, starting, uh, I'll, I'll eventually be in Genesis 9, starting at verse 8. But for now, I'm going to be 8, uh, 20 through 21. And it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so you see here, God making this statement, and, and I thought Joel did a great job of reconciling those two things, right? God saying, hey, I'm never going to destroy the earth again through water like I did. I'm never going to do this again. And the reason is because man is all messed up and wicked. <laughs> now, it seems like the reverse would be true, right? Because man is wicked and continues in his wickedness, I'm going to destroy him again and again and again until he gets it, right? And, and yet we have God saying, giving some sort of an understanding, right? An understanding of what is in man and what man struggles with. And even giving some sort of a precursor to the fact that his destruction of all humanity and beast was not actually going to ultimately solve the problem, right? Because the problem is he could have destroyed all but one, and yet the problem would still remain, wouldn't it? because of what is in every human being that's ever been born. And so we get to see that as we go through. Uh, so, uh, so starting in verse 8, uh, so Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, 
says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. Again, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again, there it is, he keeps saying, never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. Now you hear this for a second. God saying, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. Now, do you see in that passage, there is a lot of repetition, right? A lot of repetition. It's like God saying, no, I'm not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. I'm not going to do it. I'm never going to do it. Here's my covenant. Here's my promise. Will not do that again. Now, in some sense, you know, I can't, I can't say that this is the gospel truth of the interpretation of it. But in some sense, you've you got you to consider that. That must have been traumatic for Noah and his family, right? To go through, like, I don't think we can truly understand what it would be like to literally be the last family on earth and to be serving a God who literally destroyed all of the people and all of the animals on the planet. And so they probably needed to hear God saying, like, I'm not going to do this again. That was a one-time thing, never going to happen again. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, right? And so in some sense, we hear some of God's compassion for, uh, for, for these people that are, that are left to kind of um, move on from here. And then we've got the part about the rainbow. He says, so I've seen probably three rainbows like the last three or four weeks. I mean, we've, as a family, have just kind of marred. We saw a double rainbow one time. You remember that? Saw this, and it was a good, like, you know how there's usually a, like, like, like a really strong rainbow and then like a super weak rainbow? Like, this is like strong double rainbow, right? Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a thing to consider that the rainbow, to some degree, is for us, right, to understand that God made a promise that he didn't have to make. And I get it. Like, like logically, we think, you know, God's saying he'll never destroy the earth again through water. That's kind of nice, but he also said it's going to get destroyed through fire at some point, right? So it's almost like, well, that seems like kind of a technicality that God be like, I'm never going to destroy the earth again through water. <laughs> you know, like it, it might seem like small comfort to some degree. But, but what I would want you to consider is God didn't have to make any promises to anybody. He's saying something about his esteem and his value for man by even making a promise to man because man doesn't deserve a promise. The earth doesn't necessarily deserve a promise. That's not something that we're entitled to from God. And yet he decided to do that, 
right? And so when we see the rainbow, we're seeing a mark of that thing. We're seeing something that's intended to stir us to remembrance about the mercy of God and about the kindness of God, amen? But then the other thing is God is stirred to remembrance when there's a rainbow. When you see a rainbow in the sky, you can consider that God himself is remembering this moment in history. He's thinking about that um, while that is in the sky. And you might say to yourself, well, why does God need to remember? I thought God was omniscient and doesn't forget anything. I don't know that, I don't know that I'm going to be able to give you a good answer for that except for one thing. We're made in the image of God. God thinks, right? Which means that God can remember, which is a function of thinking, right? So that doesn't necessarily imply that God forgets anything, but it does imply that God can actually have a concerted focus to, to bring something to his mind and consider it, right? So consider God doing that every time you see a rainbow in the sky and that there's a significance to it beyond just a beautiful thing to look at, but this is actually God making a statement and calling people and himself to remember a moment in history that was important. Yeah, right on, man, right on. That's next week. So uh, I think I covered everything. Okay, I have these notes here, like cover all these things, and I covered all that. Okay, all right, so moving on. Now, now this, uh, I, I've, got a little, I've got a little subtitle for this section. It's called Another Grave Infraction, okay? So God has done this whole thing. He's, he's gone to these really extensive lengths. And, and, and to some degree, I would say that this is an object lesson, right? This is an object lesson for all who were to come to know, like, what, what did God not try, right? Like, what did God not try in, in his um, war against sin and the disorderliness of the universe that, that, that occurred through disobedience? Like, what did God not try, right? Has, has everything been attempted for us to understand uh, the lesson that God is trying to teach us through this? And so... Moving on with, uh, with uh, verse 18. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark, or the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Th- that's an important detail that we'll come into later. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this passage is hotly debated. So I'm not going to stand up here and say that I have, like, the right interpretation to this passage. Because, uh, you know, Christian, you know, within, within Christianity, within Judaism, this is, this is debated because the text has some nuance and unclarity to it. So I'm going to tell you some of what people think. I'm going to tell you kind of where I land. And then we're just going to have charity. Because at the end of the day, the specific interpretation, um, I don't think matters as much as the principle. Okay? So, uh, so some people think it's very straightforward and it means what it says. You know, that, that basically Ham um, saw his father naked. It was an embarrassing and a shameful thing. You know, there was, it was certainly not okay for, for that to happen uh, at those times. But that instead of rectifying it, instead of, you know, doing an honorable thing about it, he kind of indulged in it, 
right? He kind of indulged in it, maybe thought it was funny, and, and then went out and told his brothers, you know, hey, you know, dad's passed out in the tent naked, you know, like what an idiot type thing, right? Uh, that's, that, is, that is one in interpretation. It's probably the most common interpretation that you'll run into. Um, the, other in the other two interpretations are just a bit more graphic, so I'm not going to get too much into it because there are children. Um, I will say that, that there are statements like this or phrases like this in the Hebrew that are idiomatic, meaning they mean more than they say. So uh, easy example, um, let's see, what's a good example? Y'all ever heard the expression, we're going to go paint the town red? What does that mean? We're going to paint the town red. We're going to party, right? But if I looked up, like, paint in town in red, I would never, it would never lead me to what that phrase actually means. Does that make sense? Because it's an idiom. It's an expression that means something within a cultural context. So this expression could mean um, that, that there was actually abuse that happened, right? That there was abuse that happened from Ham towards his father, or that there was abuse that happened actually between Ham and his mother, right? That that actually could have happened. Uh, and so, so those, are, those are all the, now, now if you were to ask me, Johnny, which one do you believe? I've kind of waffled back and forth because I've looked, I've done the studies, and at the end of the day, I'm probably going to lean more towards the, the, the direct interpretation that there was something in Ham's heart about interacting with his father's nakedness that was the issue here. Um, that's probably where I'll lean, even though I think the, I think the arguments to the other, uh, the other conclusions are convincing. But I'm going to leave it at that because at the end of the day, what matters is Ham didn't do right by his father. And it was a serious offense. It was a serious unkindness that he did. It was a serious manifestation of sin, right? Post flood, right? After God has done, gone to these apocalyptic extents to, to cleanse the world. And how long does it take? How many generations does it take for sin to come back up? It's immediate, right? Um, and so there's a phrasing that I'm going to use here uh, because What's being illuminated here, and then what God even acknowledges in the passage that I let out with, is that to be man is to be sinful. And therefore, all the floods and catastrophes and calamities in the world won't solve that problem. And this is just further evidence of that claim. And if you keep reading, the whole Bible, if it proves anything, <laughs> I mean, the whole Bible and all of history proves that to be true. And then not only that, but you individually in your life have proven it true. And so, so man is without excuse in this particular knowledge, isn't he? Like we know this. We've been told. We know it on the outside. We know it on the inside. Uh, and and I'll, I'll say this is something that Paul later calls the law of sin. And the law of sin is a law that humans cannot break ultimately. Okay, and I'm, I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but that humans don't actually have the power to free themselves of the law of sin. This is true. I'll give you a little bit of a preview of what's coming. So uh, this is Romans 8. Um, I believe it's verse 5. I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. You can look at it yourself. God has done with the law 
weakened by the flesh could not do. And then we go into what God did about it, right? But God had to do what the law, right? Now we're talking about, now, now we're talking about Moses' law, law, the law of righteousness. God had to do what the law couldn't do because the law was weak through the what? The flesh. Who has flesh? Every human that's ever been born, okay? And so the question is, why is that so hard? This is one question that, to, to just ask yourself. Why is it so hard for us to understand that? And, and why, not, it's like we can come to the understanding of it at certain times, but why is it so hard for us to really, really get that there is something in us that compels us to sin? And it's not something that can be overcome just by wrestling it down or just by doing enough good things to make up for it or to offset it, right? And yet, we, and yet that's where we go. That's, I mean, you know, who went there yesterday? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> um, but but it, it, doesn't that give you a sense for just how stubborn and thick the, the heart and mind of a human is? that after all the evidence has been displayed, the external evidence, the internal evidence of this one very fundamental thing that God seems to really want us to know, um, and yet it's still fleeting, right? It's It's still hard for us to grasp that because every man thinks that he is good in his own heart. Like every man thinks his ways are right, don't we? Isn't that a strong urge in us? That's why we don't want to repent. We don't want to say we're wrong because... No, but I had a good reason for that. You know, I was right. And it's like, no, nah, but your heart was wrong, and you know it was. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> All right, that's conviction, man. You better listen to it. It's conviction. So next I have a case study of, you know, sin and goodness and, and how they react and play off of each other. So it says, then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so here's a contrast, right? So where we have Ham, who kind of makes light of the situation, we have Shem and Japheth who show respect for their father, they show love for their father, and they, they go and they cover his nakedness. They, they, they seek to rectify or to bless the situation. And so there's a nobility that we see in this, right? There's a nobility. There's something good that we see. And so that leads me to the next point, which is there is nobility in man, right? There is a nobility and a goodness in man because man is made in the image of God. So I know sometimes Christians or myself just struggle with, man, I know this person that's not even a believer and they do all these good things. Like, do they even need Jesus, right? And it, and it begins to challenge your faith to a degree, doesn't it? Because like, oh man, that person's better than me though. <laughs> like you're, whoever, again, don't raise your hand, but who's thought that before, right? You know, like I know people that don't love Jesus that are better people than me, Amen. It's challenging. Let us not forget that, that all men, all humans, all men, women, and children have been made in the image of a beautiful God, right? And that beautiful splendor of his light shows through humanity in different ways. And, it, and that, that brings us right back to the contradiction that, 
that is so difficult for us to understand as humans and get our head around, you know, that, that yes, every human <laughs> has the law of sin that they cannot break ultimately. And every human also is made in the image of God. And in every person, whether they love Jesus or not, you're gonna see those things manifesting, both their adherence to the law of sin and they're acting out the reality that they're made in the image of God. And it's beautiful, and it ought to be praiseworthy, right? Like, should I not praise a person who doesn't love Jesus when I see that there's virtue in what they have done? Absolutely. Why? Because I see God. I see God. I see the image of God in the person. And that's, that's, that's true. It's accurate. It's right. Down to 24, uh, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, it says done to him, um, which is that, that phrasing is part of what leads to the belief that there's potentially more that happened than just seeing. It said, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Now, this is another passage that's just difficult to understand, and I'm not going to pretend, nor to take the burden upon myself that I, that I have to go earn my doctorate in Hebrew, and, and then even there, it doesn't mean that I was a, a Hebrew living at the time that, that, that this was written to, directly to, right? So with that disclaimer said, it is strange that Ham committed the sin and that Noah then judges Canaan. And when he judges Canaan, it appears that he's not just judging Canaan, the individual, the youngest son of Ham but Canaan the nation, right? Canaan the nation. And that's, that's not just implied, that's stated because we're talking about the nation of Canaan serving uh, the other descendants. And so one question is why? Why, why, why would God, why, why not, not God? And let's also keep that separate. This isn't God cursing. This is Noah cursing, okay? Now there does happen to be that this curse um, was played out in reality, but what we don't get to know is if it was played out in reality because of this sin or if it had to do with the behaviors of Canaan that reflected the behaviors of his father Ham as a tribe, right, as people. And then we also know, to complicate things a little bit further, and who here has heard of Melchizedek? So Melchizedek, a type of Christ, um, one of the most righteous people ever, ever referenced in the Bible, um, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, he was the king of Salem, which was in Canaan, which implies that he may have been a Canaanite, but at the very least, he was ministering to Canaanites. <laughs> Does that make sense? So all that to say, I don't know why Noah cursed Canaan for what Ham did. I will say that some of the alternate theories do account for that, 
um, I'm going to go ahead and just let it be what it is because a, a lot of these patriarchs, their words did carry weight. And so when they, when they gave blessings and cursings to their children, a lot of times you see those played out in the Bible. Um, and you don't necessarily get to know why they prophesied one thing over another. But a lot of times they did. So I'm not going to dig into that further because I don't know that it's going to be beneficial for the message. And I also don't know. So there is that. Um, what we do know is that there were consequences for Ham's actions. That's what we do know. And that is very clear, that, that on, a, on a purely practical level, on a purely practical level, we have God's law, and then we have, we have doing things that are contrary to God's law. And we know that whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist or whatever, if, if you practice certain areas of God's law, there's certain blessings that are gonna come to you, right? Am I wrong with that? <laughs> like, that's true. God's law is not just spiritual, it is also just plain wisdom. And it's good for people, right? Um, on the other side of things, if, if people live, live in, um, you know, in rejection or do the opposite of what God's law says, there are consequences that happen. And this is just practical, real life. What it doesn't address is the underlying motive that causes a person to sin, right? And that's where, that's where I get to take this text and then I get to fast forward it through thousands of years of, of, of repetition and confirming the same thing and the same thing and the same thing until we get to the place where we realize, man, Oh, wretched man, like, like, like nobody's going to be saved if God doesn't intervene because, because just knowing what to do good, just knowing the law, you know, the different iterations of law that come and the different commandments that, that come, it's proven again and again that just knowing it is not enough for a person to be saved, right? For a person to actually get what they need. And the true problem is deeper than behavior. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump into, we're going to, we're going to jump a little bit more into the practical now. So having kind of, kind of, kind of examined the text, understanding what's happening in the text, understanding God in his, his, in his wisdom, causing the story to unfold this way, right? And then looking at it as a case study of a continuous message throughout scripture. Um, and it is the same message that we preach from this pulpit every day. It is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That we're not talking about sin in a general sense. We're talking, I'm talking about you, right? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking to the kids. I'm talking to the moms and the dads and the grandparents, right? All of us know this is true. If we know anything in this life, we know that if our destiny is left to us, if my destiny is left to me and my resources, I will make a mess of my life. I will destroy myself and I will destroy other people because I have. Because all humans have since Adam. 
and it brings us to this place, right, where I'm about to, I'm about to read to you. The only place that it can bring me is, is hopefully an understanding that it's not about the next book I read. Do you understand? It's not about how good I can be. It's not about how strong I can struggle against sin in my life. But I actually need something to be done to me that I can't do to myself. Which brings us right back to where Joel concluded yesterday. That that, 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 that word Jesus is everything. Um, so Romans 7. Y'all, you probably know this very well. Uh, Romans chapter 7. seven Verse 18, both summarizing the problem and also bringing us to the solution. I know this is a real cliffhanger here. You're like, what's he going to say next? What could be the answer? <laughs> Romans 7, 18 through 25. This is, uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. That sentence says so much, right? Because it both accounts for the image of God and the law of sin at the same time, right? He's saying there's no good. He doesn't just leave it that there's no good that dwells in me. He says that is in my flesh. There's an aspect of me that doesn't want God and never will. And the only answer that God has given for that part of me is death. Not improvement, not rehabilitation, crucifixion. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Anybody ever felt like that? Anybody feeling like that today? I want to do what's good, but I can't. I find that I can't. Now, this is saved Paul talking, <laughs> okay? It's unclear to me whether he's talking about, about past Paul because parts of this passage he is talking about himself in the past tense, but then he shifts to the present tense when he's speaking about this particular piece, all I can say is I'm a Christian and I very much identify with this and I've been walking with the Lord for 24 years. So I believe it applies to both. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Another sentence that is so packed with gospel significance, all right? If I do what I do not want to do. In other words, if I've been granted the ability to actually despise or dislike the things that I do that are out of, out of sync with God and his ways, right? Something is happening when that happens to me. When I see myself and myself and I see what I want to do, and then I see what I do do. There's a duality all of a sudden that becomes um, manifested to me to educate me and to teach me. And then the understanding, it is no longer I who do it. At this point when I understand that, right, 
It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it, right? There are many, many people out there that love their sin, right? That live knee deep in their sin and they love it. And then there are people who sin, but they don't love their sin because they want to do better. And what is it, what is that, right? What is it that makes that possible? And what's being revealed is the thing, the mysterious thing that it took an entire Bible to begin to illuminate for us, right? It took all these iterations of catastrophe and law and failure and teaching and command and pain and tragedy, all these generations for this to become illuminated that there is something in human beings that is diametrically opposed to God and always will be. And you can't flood it out. You can't will it out. You can't crush it out. And so this is how it gets worked out. It's almost like this funnel, like this Bible just funnels us down to this single, simple conclusion that we need more than education. So I find this law at work. I'm gonna have the worship team come on up. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Pure reiteration of everything I've just been saying, right? And the conclusion now, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? All this so that the apostle could ask the right question because you see, he didn't ask how, right? He didn't say, what book can I read that will save me from the body of this death? What law could be given unto me that I might follow it that will save me from the body of this death? What rigorous program of discipline (laughs) could be given to me? He says, who, who will rescue me? from this body of death. Then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He answers the question with a person, which again, I'm ending the same place that Joel ended on Sunday. The, The answer to your heart's most essential and foundational question is a name, the name of a person. And, and, and I know it's hard to apply this, right? I know that in the circumstances that you're in, your, 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 your circumstances are demanding an answer from you, right? And that answer is often like, okay, I gotta work harder, man. I gotta fix this. I gotta make this right. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. It always starts with I gotta, doesn't it? And it seems almost childish, to think in your mind, in your heart, that the answer to your question is Jesus. That the answer to my very real financial concerns 
is Jesus, that the answer to my very real marriage concerns is Jesus, that the answer to my very real parenting concerns is Jesus, that the answer to my very real personal concerns and pain or sickness that I struggle with is Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that is the answer, and it's the only answer. And you go ahead and comb this scripture and comb history and tell me that anybody's ever found any other answer. And it may sound childish, but God wants us to, he calls us to be as little children. And it brings us right back to what Joel preached, which is my role then becomes to believe. That becomes my role. And that is hard. And I'm not minimizing the difficulty of that. I'm not minimizing the amount of times that we fail and come back. The word says the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Seven times, right? Biblical number used of completion, a concept of completion. Biblical number used of of, of you know, more than seven, time after time after time after time, right? So I just want to encourage you today that getting back on the horse, it may include, yes, it includes responsibility. Yes, it includes taking action. Yes, it includes those things. But primarily before it includes any of those things, it's coming back to Jesus because what you need is a miracle. And we wait We wait. Part of what we do is we wait. And sometimes, beloved, we ought to wait a long time. I know this. I'm telling you, I know. I know we got to wait a long time sometimes, and it's hard. But there's not another answer is what I'm trying to tell you. It's it's still that word. It's still that name. It's still that person, whether whether you got to wait five years or five minutes. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you, Jesus, for all these people that are here. I thank you, Lord God, that this is a place of healing because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And where two or more are gathered in your name, you are there among us, Lord God. Your power's in this room. This isn't just me transmitting information to people, Father. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as I pray, and as your word lingers in the minds and the hearts of your people, and as the worship team now bids us and guides us and leads us into response. I pray that shackles would be broken. I pray that hopelessness would be remedied. I pray that hearts would be healed. I pray that faith would be rekindled. I pray that captives would get set free, Lord Jesus. And I pray with faith, believing that you are well able, Lord God. We don't give you enough credit. There is nothing that we're dealing with that is a mountain for you. It's a mountain for us, but there's nothing we're dealing with that's a mountain for you, Lord Jesus. So have mercy on us, Lord. And I pray that for my own self, that we may go out into this world and into this week as people with a song to sing. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us with a verse. And this, uh, you know, as I was praying, this was, this was a part of my prayer for us in the body. And, uh, and this is Romans 8, 22 through 25. It's 8, through 25, and it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is for those who are groaning inwardly, for those of us who are in pain. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen? And so my prayer is for an outpouring of hope because sometimes we wait for a long time for something and it doesn't happen and we begin to lose hope. But we need hope so that we can have patience. Right? So, for those of us in the room that do not know Jesus, for those of you that don't know Jesus, and I'm talking about man, woman, or child, um, you know you know in your heart, right? You know in your heart whether, whether you have, have received the Lord Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And so my encouragement is, man, if the Spirit is moving on you in any way, right, if there's anything that's, that's illuminated something for you or that struck a chord with you in some way, respond. And I know sometimes you might feel afraid because it seems like a weird thing. But let me tell you, there's everybody in this room that loves Jesus has been sitting right where you're sitting at some point where we got stirred up, where, where all of a sudden he became exceedingly beautiful to us. And, and, and he could be calling you today to give your life to him and to know him and to know that you are loved and that your life has purpose and meaning and that this gospel and, and this good news is not just for everybody else except you, but that it does actually for you because um, no one will be excluded except those who exclude themselves. Amen? Amen? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So maybe this is the day for you. So if so, you can do it to yourself. You can talk to somebody else. You can come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, I want to call to repentance. So for some of us, it's a painful moment when the word goes out and we see areas in our life that don't line up. Um, and I just want to encourage you to press in. God's merciful when he calls you to repentance, amen? When he, when he illuminates something in your life that's out of joint, it's not, just, it's not to make you ashamed. It is to call you to repentance, which is productive. Repentance is always productive, right? It's not just this sense that, you're, you're sitting under God's condemnation or that, uh, that there's, there's, there's these things that are, that are wrong that you just can't really put your finger on. But when God convicts you, um, he's showing you so that you can cry out to him and turn from those ways and repent. Uh, call to giving. You know, we've got, uh, we've got giving boxes at the back where you can give. If, uh, you know, as, as the Lord has um, uh, convinced you and convicted you and called you to give. And then I want to call to remembrance. So we've got communion on the left and to the right where you can uh, partake of the Lord's su Supper, um, where we can remember the covenant, right? Remember that, that, that Jesus came and, and, and he fulfilled the part of the covenant that we couldn't fulfill. And he took the punishment for us that we deserved and to go and reflect upon that. And then finally, if you want prayer, I want to continue to encourage you like I do every time that I preach. Um, don't miss your opportunity to get prayed for. Because in praying, 
you are acknowledging that the answer to your problems is a supernatural answer and that you need to call upon God directly as, he's, as he has called you to an obedience with your brothers and sisters. And so I'd encourage you, don't pass up the opportunity for, for prayer and don't consider it a small thing because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm telling you, none of us are. So let's, uh, let's, let's treat that as an important thing. And let's continue to worship.